I'm Cameron Silsby, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part 81 in our series, The Gospel of Matthew. As the trial of Jesus continues before Pontius Pilate, the court scene devolves into more and more of a mess, providing a microcosm of humanity post-Genesis 3. This court scene forces us to take a hard look at humanity and ourselves, forcing us to sit in the tension of human brokenness and evil as it comes up against a God that works for justice and salvation. What is the basis of morality and ethics? Who decides what is right and wrong, good and evil? I think these questions are especially uh, interesting and important for uh, Western societies like ourselves that continue to become more secular and also pluralistic and must try to govern and relate with people who draw morality and ethics from differing foundations, sometimes even uh, conflicting foundations. Now, uh, you know, there's, there's a ton of anthropologists, philosophers, sociologists, Christians, non-Christians debating this stuff, and surprise, surprise, I find it fascinating. I just absolutely love these debates and discussions. I'm a sucker for them, especially when it's like two world-class philosophers or scholars, you know, and there's more, they're more dialoguing than debating about the issue. It is enthralling to me. And I'm sure for a lot of you, you're about to fall asleep just having me describe it. But it's actually, it's, it's great stuff. Uh, and on top of all that, my three-year-old daughter recently entered into these debates. Uh, she started using the declaration, that's not fair. But uh, I think she's not quite sure yet what it means, or at least kind of how it applies, because she'll use it in situations that don't really make sense. Like, we'll ask her to go to the bathroom before we get in the car to go somewhere, and she'll like protest with passion and, and, and with so much emotion, that's not fair. Well, you know, I didn't realize emptying a bladder and avoiding cleaning a car seat was a question about justice, but I guess it is for a three-year-old. But, you know, these, this sort of questioning, these, these questions, um, also kind of seems to fit in with the general theme of this last year heading into this year. Who decides what pandemic restrictions are good and fair? I know I've grumbled against the, I mean, I assume the best efforts of politicians and scientists and policymakers to curb the pandemic while also balancing economic and societal realities. You know, what do I know about this stuff? But I still think they're wrong sometimes. There was an insurrection a month ago by a group of people who declared that the election was unfair. State and federal courts, state and federal election officials, pretty much the entire federal, federal government, government minus the former president were saying otherwise, declaring that it was in fact a fair and good election, but that didn't convince hundreds of thousands of people who traveled from across the country to protest and to demand an overturning of the election results. And some, feeling so passionate and certain about the stealing of the election, committed felonies as they harmed police officers and threatened people's lives and as they stormed the Capitol building itself. There's also been protests across the country against racial injustice. Communities expressing lament, grief, frustration, anger through public demonstrations. 
wanting justice, even demanding justice and equity for people of color. They've decried racism as evil and wrong, and others, though, have pushed back against these demands for justice, claiming that it isn't that bad, despite history and, and current evidence and events that would say otherwise. Who's right? Is the status quo for people of color right and fair? We specifically looked at racial injustice and the theology of politics through the lens of the scriptures in two different series last year. So if you want to hear more about that stuff, I'd encourage you to go give them a listen. Let's just say that humans have a very complicated and messy history when it comes to deciding what is right and wrong, good and evil. Tonight's story, I think, really reaches down into the muck of that reality, but does it does it as a part of God's story of salvation for the world. So let's jump in, okay? Let me pray really fast before we do so. Jesus, you are here with us by your spirit. Would you speak to us through your scriptures? We want to hear from you. We don't just want to learn things about you. We want to hear from the living God about who we are, about who you are. We want to grow closer to you in this time. Thank you for your love. We love you. Amen. Look down with me and let's start reading in verse 15. Now, it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? For he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. Last week we did some work to understand Pilate and the religious leaders and the political and social, uh, societal context of this trial. Um, if you didn't hear it, go back and listen. Uh, quick recap though, Jesus has been brought before the representative of Roman authority, Pontius Pilate. Pilate is governor over an unimportant but difficult to manage part of the Roman empire called Judea. His most pressing concern, concerns are keeping the, the peace and collecting taxes. If he fails at either one of them, he will be removed from power by Emperor Tiberius. The Jewish religious leaders are led by the high priest Caiaphas. He's a shrewd man doing an effective job at balancing the competing interests of Pilate and the political and religious ruling body of Israel called the Sanhedrin, and he also must account for the interests and desires of the populace of Judea as well. If Pilate doesn't like the job Caiaphas is doing, he has the power to remove him from being high priest. But they are allies to a certain extent, sharing enough common ground to have Pilate keep Caiaphas as high priest for his entire run as governor. To Pilate, Jesus seems to be an unimpressive peasant rabbi from rural Galilee. To the religious leaders and Caiaphas, Jesus is a somewhat popular figure who has been criticizing and undermining their authority. They've charged Jesus with blasphemy, which is an offense deserving death according to Jewish religious law, but that charge would mean little to Pilate. The religious leaders want Jesus to be executed, but Pilate has the ultimate authority to carry out death sentences, so they must convince Pilate that Jesus is a threat to Rome's peace and power. So in verse 15 of tonight's text, Matthew reminds us of the context of this trial. It's the Passover. 
The Passover was and still is an annual Jewish festival of remembrance. It's It uses a a meal full of symbolism, and the story of Israel's rescue from uh, slavery and oppression in Egypt is retold. This story provides some theological significance for tonight's text and also explains why there was a tradition of releasing a prisoner around the Passover celebration. But as a warning, fair warning, it might be just a tad dense, you know, because we're talking about history and stuff, but it's important to the text, so just stick with me, all right? The story of the Passover is one tied intimately to the story of the scriptures and is an important paradigm for how Jesus sees his role in all of this. You can read the immediate story of the Exodus in the book of Exodus chapters 1 through 15 or watch the movie The Prince of Egypt. It's pretty good. But really, the story starts before that. The story of the Exodus starts in Genesis 3. There, you find a talking snake, a tree with the name of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is a bit of a mouthful, and you find human rebellion. A simplistic reading of the story is that God tells Adam and Eve not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but they they listen to a talking snake and do so anyways, breaking the rule God made. Uh Uh-oh. But it's more significant than that and needs nuancing. To eat from the tree wasn't just going against God told them not, something God told them not to do. It was an intentional act in league with the serpent, a spiritual being in rebellion against God to define what is good and what is evil apart from God. It was an act of rebellion against God's authority an ill-fated attempt to push back God's authority in order to establish human authority as ultimate. And it was a disaster. You could boil down the story to this. Who gets to determine what is right and wrong, good and evil? Genesis 3 is where humans attempt to grasp this authority away from God and choose to live under their own determination of right and wrong, good and evil. In the story, you see God's character as he responds to this rebellion. He goes and looks for Adam and Eve. He invites confession and repentance. He curses the serpent, but not the humans. And he promises to crush the serpent through the offspring of the woman, a foreshadowing of the story of the scriptures and the role Jesus is to play. And as the story moves from Genesis 3, you are given a front row seat to humanity as it tries to exercise ultimate authority of right and wrong. It's ugly and it's brutal. And then as you fast forward in the story and you find God's people enslaved by the superpower Egypt, They are being used by Egypt for economic growth and power, and when the people become too numerous and threaten that growth and power, the king of Egypt devises a plan of ethnic cleansing against Israel. There is nothing stopping Egypt from treating their slaves as they wish. And with humans deciding right and wrong, might makes right. Except that God sees what is happening to Israel and Egypt. And he judges that what Egypt is doing is unjust. 
God decides to act, bringing justice and salvation. He brings justice against Egypt's religious, economic, and political structures, and he rescues Israel out of slavery. It's both a decisive rebuke of humanity's ability and desire to determine right and wrong, and it's also a revealing of what God determines as good and evil. That's a theological paradigm of the Passover. For many Jewish people in the first century, it shaped the way they saw Rome and their longings for freedom from Rome. It's not hard to to use the paradigm of Exodus and substitute Egypt for Rome. I mean, sure, the Jewish people weren't outright slaves, but at least for me, it's easy to see how they might as well have been with uh, Rome's taxation and, and keeping them in deep poverty. And to be fair, Rome wasn't attempting to ethnically cleanse Israel per se, but Rome would have loved to see the Jewish identity as God's people and the practice of only worshiping one God watered down to help them fit into Roman society. So for many Jewish people, Rome equaled Egypt, which means that the Passover festival was an especially tense time with inflamed passions for freedom from oppression. Pilate understood this well, hence why he is present in Jerusalem at this time, which wasn't his primary residence. He was there to directly command his centurions to crush any uprisings or riots that may start from the inflamed passions of the Jewish people observing Passover. I'm sure you can gather that this prisoner release that Matthew writes of was supposed to appease the Jewish people. Maybe, you know, showing that Rome was merciful and not so bad. So Pilate, at this point, certain that Jesus has been sent to him because of the jealousy of the religious leaders, does some problem solving that betrays his motives. Even though he knows Jesus is innocent, he allows the crowd to decide who should be freed. Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah. Whichever choice is made will most appease the crowd and, and raises the likelihood that peace will be maintained in the city. And now, a, a word on this figure Barabbas. You know, that his name is also Jesus is both effective storytelling and also not all that surprising. The Hebrew name Yeshua, Jesus, was a very popular name in the first century, so it's not hard to imagine that there being two persons who are named Yeshua. But since they share a name, it naturally invites comparison. Jesus Barabbas was a well-known prisoner. And what we gather from the other three first century biographies of Jesus is that Barabbas was a revolutionary, the, the leader of a recent insurrection against Roman authority. Jesus, on the other hand, was a nonviolent rabbi. Barabbas was known to be guilty of insurrection. There was no question about that. Pilate knows Jesus is innocent, though. And so, presiding as judge, Pilate hands over the responsibility of judgment to the crowd. Look down at verse 19. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. While Pilate is sitting in the position of power as judge, his wife sends him a shocking message. This man is innocent. Don't have a hand in any injustice against him. 
Now, even more interesting is that she doesn't just merely say Jesus is innocent. The word she uses is the Greek word dikaio, which, which most often is translated as righteous. Literally, in the Greek, she calls Jesus that righteous one. And interestingly enough, in Isaiah 53, the Messiah is referred to by God as the righteous one, my servant. Pilate's wife most likely didn't correlate Jesus as Messiah, and her wording may have been coincidental, but it's highly ironic and also very typical of Matthew that so far in this account, the only person to rightly declare Jesus as righteous is an outsider a pagan woman who has no power over the court proceedings, let alone much value in her society. Pilate is sitting in the judge's seat, abdicating his responsibility to justice by giving the power of decision over to the crowd while his wife is requesting justice for Jesus. Look down at verse 20. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask Barabbas and, and to have, ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? Asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus who is called the Messiah? Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Why, what crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the loud, louder, crucify him. The religious leaders confirm Pilate's suspicion that they only want Jesus executed because he's a threat to their power, not Rome's. They convince the crowd to choose a well-known insurrectionist over the nonviolent Jesus. They have judged the greater good, or simply their own greater good, is served by having Barabbas released and Jesus essentially taking his place, suffering his punishment. The crowds are swayed by the religious leader's influence and ask for Barabbas. Pilate continues to abdicate his role. This is uh, it's just stunning to me. He continues to abdicate his role as judge. He not only gives a crowd the right to judge Jesus and Barabbas, but then he allows the crowd to decide what punishment Jesus should receive. Pilate, the representative of Roman power and authority, Pax Romana, is revealed as weak and vulnerable, needing to appease a crowd rather than render justice. I mean, who really is the judge in this scene? Who's the one determining what is right and wrong and evil and good? Who is guiding this thing along? Pilate has abdicated his role as a judge. He's given the power over to the crowds. The crowds are easily manipulated for other purposes, as crowds usually are. The religious leaders have judged Jesus as a liar and blasphemer, but they're desperately working at manipulating Pilate and the crowds to get the judgment they so desire. The only person in Matthew's narrative that sees things with accuracy is a pagan woman who is not highly valued in that society and has no direct power to make a difference in this jumbled mess. So she utilizes her influence with her husband to try to see Jesus freed. She follows through with her conviction. It's really admirable. 
The crowds whom Pilate has empowered to make such a decision and who have been manipulated by the religious leaders determine that Jesus is guilty and worthy of, of crucifixion, the most humiliating execution Rome had to offer. With humans determining what is good and evil, right and wrong, we have managed to declare that Jesus, God in flesh and blood, an innocent person, a nonviolent rabbi, should die. The fault does not lie solely at the feet of the Jewish people or the religious leaders or Pontius Pilate or Emperor Tiberius. This is Jew and Gentile representing humanity making this judgment. Matthew does not intend for us to lay the blame at others' feet for this, but to see yourself, ourselves, as part of the problem. This is you and me. This is what Genesis 3 has matured into. This is what we affirm every time we act and make choices contrary to the way of Jesus. Scholar Stanley Hauerwas writes this, Jesus must be killed because Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus must be killed because Jesus has called into existence a new people who constitute a challenge to the world order based on lies and deceit. Jesus must be killed because he's a threat to all who rule in the name of safety and comfort. Jesus must be killed because we do not desire to have our deepest desires exposed. Jesus must be killed because we do not want our, our loves governed by his love. Jesus must be killed because we refuse to forgive our enemies. Jesus must be killed because we do not believe in a God who creates us and who would come among us after our likeness. Crucify him, the crowds shout. Verse 24, when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Pilate sees an uproar, as in a, a riot starting. So what does he do? He declares himself innocent. The only official act he takes as a judge, and he declares himself innocent. He ignores his, his wife's plea to, to declare Jesus innocent, and instead he declares himself innocent. The crowd declares themselves guilty, willingly. They want Barabbas and not Jesus, and they fully admit it. Verse 25 has been used as a pretext for heinous, disgusting acts of hate and violence towards Jewish people by people claiming the name of Jesus. They've labeled Jewish people Christ killers or God killers, 
historians have traced this strand of anti-Semitism starting in the early church writings all the way to the Holocaust and continues to this day. It's a shameful reality for the church to grapple with. And the horrific irony of the Bible being used as a pretext for anti-Semitism is that Matthew is Jewish, writing an account of Jesus for, we think, a mostly Jewish Christian audience. Jesus is Jewish. Christianity came through the story of the scriptures and the Jewish people. And it completely misses the point of Matthew. They didn't kill Jesus. We did. God's image bearers, humanity. This line the crowd shouts doesn't invite ongoing judgment and punishment. It is a finger pointing forward about 40 years from this scene. In 40 years' time from this court scene, Rome will be marching through the Judean countryside, reaping death and destruction on the Jewish people. They will march up to Jerusalem, Jerusalem, lay siege to the city, and utterly ruin the city and the temple, which was the center of Jewish religious life. Rome does this because the Jewish people violently revolt against Rome, killing centurions and kicking Rome out of Judea for a few years. Rome comes back with a vengeance, and the carnage that follows is horrific and evil. Matthew sees a connection here with the crowd's pronouncement of the consequences being on their children and with the events 40 years later of Rome destroying Jerusalem. It's as if Matthew is saying, because you are choosing the violence of Barabbas today over a nonviolent Messiah, it will take you down a dark road and your children will pay for it. The ridiculousness and ugliness of people using this text to inflict hate and violence on Jewish people cannot escape the irony of the passage itself. By choosing hatred and violence, they become complicit with the crowd choosing Barabbas over Jesus. Pilate concludes this court scene by releasing the guilty and punishing the innocent. Barabbas is given to the crowd while Jesus is tortured and ultimately crucified. This court scene is such a mess. I think it also rings true to human experience and history. Humanity is a bloody mess. It seems at times like it's all just competing interests and judgments and manipulation, all coalescing and marching us towards a disaster of our own making. Or maybe I just woke up on the wrong side of the bed this morning. But, you know, might makes right. Empires and oppression, judges and injustice, bloodthirsty mobs manipulated by people in positions of power for their own ends, some things never change. But there's been progress, right? Lifespans have increased, higher literacy rates, medical marvels, technology, the ideology of human progress screams at us that we're oh so close to what we've always longed for, immortality and a never-ending slow drift of dopamine through endless entertainment and unconquerable comfort. Let's just ignore the modern-day slaves making our lattes possible as they pick coffee beans or make that $3 shirt from Forever 21. 
Let's just keep staring at the small box in our hands, at pictures of the newer version of that same box, and ignore the children who handled the rare and highly toxic metals that were required for it. From a seat of comfort, you and I can clearly judge, especially during the countdown timer to the next Netflix episode loading, who is guilty and who is innocent, who is evil and who is good, and make sure it's tweeted. Hate our enemy, but love our favorite YouTube personality and make sure we're subscribed to their channel. Might makes right. Or maybe comfort makes right. I definitely did wake up on the wrong side of the bed this morning. <laughs> okay, uh, but to be transparent with you guys and you know, old grumpy man ranting aside, um, it's not that I woke up on the wrong side of the bed. It's that the last few months, culminating in the last few weeks, have kind of hit me pretty hard. I went to school for political science for a couple of years, and I've remained fascinated to some degree by politics, but I take very seriously the idea that I am a citizen of God's kingdom first and foremost, that my allegiance is only to King Jesus, not a flag or a political party or even a nation. That theology has allowed me to remain fairly emotionally detached from political happenings. I've approached them more as a fascinated outside observer rather than someone investing hope into it. But the last few months have crept across that line of detachment and have hit me hard. Part of it is that I've needed to actually repent and recommit to limiting my news intake. That stuff can be incredibly formative. It's a skewed view of the world, curated to generate a cycle of fear and or rage that draws a person back to keep watching. Part of that skewed view is a close-up, concentrated dose of the brokenness, evil, chaos, selfishness, and hatred of humanity. Something that pans the political, socioeconomic, racial, ethnic, national lines, strands of which I am attached to by my actions, choices, attitudes. It's not just them, it's me. The mess and injustice of this court scene with Jesus seemed all too familiar with me as I was studying it this week. It's still happening. But as is the case in the first century court scene, God is present and at work. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. Those are the words of the prophet Isaiah describing a post-Genesis 3 humanity. But these words, which can seem so hopeless and nihilistic, are embedded in the promise of a coming Messiah, a coming Savior. Isaiah goes on to say, and Yahweh has laid on him, that is the Messiah, the iniquity of us all. Barabbas doesn't do much of anything in the story except stand there. And yet, he is paradigmatic in a couple of ways. In one sense, we are Barabbas, you and I. We were once prisoners, and rightfully so 
guilty as charged. We have participated in the evil of the world. We have participated in rebellion against God, declaring ourselves the true judges of what is right and wrong, good and evil, screaming this declaration with how we live, with our attitudes and actions and choices. But this declaration did not mean freedom and autonomy. It rendered us prisoners to rebellion. We were slaves to evil and brokenness. Isaiah articulates God's answer to this. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Jesus, partnering with the Father, stepped in to to make a way for forgiveness healing, and restoration. He was condemned, and we were declared innocent and citizens of God's kingdom, his sons and his daughters, rebels and slaves no more. This is God at work, using humanity's choice of and bent towards evil and injustice against itself to make a way to freedom in God's kingdom. This is God answering rebellion with justice and salvation, promising to bring justice against evil and also offering to rescue out of the slavery and oppression of the darkness if one so accepts the invitation. This is fitting, after all, since it was Passover. A lamb dies A meal is eaten, and the people escape death and slavery in Egypt for freedom and new life with God. N.T. Wright notes this. By the end of the passage, it is crystal clear. Barabbas represents all of us. When Jesus dies, the brigand goes free, the sinners go free, we all go free. That, after all, is what a Passover story ought to be about. Through Jesus, God made a way for us rebels to be welcomed into his kingdom. Barabbas is also paradigmatic of a choice we have, a choice that followers of Jesus always have. Who do you want to be your Messiah? A military leader conquering your hated and feared enemies? The accepting, always positive religious figure of Jesus that has nothing to say about your personal life and how you live. You know, the one that just wants you to be happy. Or how about the uh, Jesus that cares deeply about social justice, but only your causes? Or the Jesus that cares deeply about your sin, but doesn't want you distracted by the oppression and, and the injustice all around you? Scholar Dale Bruner has this to say about the choice between Barabbas and Jesus. It seems every generation offers the people of God two Jesuses, one of whom is a popular, patriotic, hate-the-enemy liberator. No church, of course, has the whole Jesus. He is not easy to capture. I love that line. He is not easy to capture. But that doesn't mean we don't try. One of the best places to start is by rejecting either-or paradigms of Jesus that fall along political lines in America. Don't trust them. For instance, Jesus came to bring life and life to the fullest. He is for life, 
Death is the enemy of God, one, in, one which has been disarmed through Jesus. Jesus is for life. Life in the womb, life outside of the womb, the life of the poor, scared, pregnant teenager, and the life of the desperate, hungry, homeless immigrant. He cares about the elderly who are in mass moved to the margins of society to live in enormous buildings all huddled together. Those who have lived for a long time in a broken world and who are nearing the end of their lives, their value to him has not dis diminished with age, even though in our capitalistic society, it motivates us to see them in that way. They are just as much the image of God as you and I are. Now, that does not fit into American partisan politics, but it fits nicely into the teachings and the lifestyle and the theology of Jesus and the scriptures. Reject either or caricatures of Jesus based on political ideology rather than the scriptures. We choose the Jesus of the scriptures over Barabbas by not only the things we profess to believe, but also by what is lived out in our lives with the scriptures acting as our guide to Jesus of Nazareth, not Jesus Barabbas. We study the scriptures. We've been doing that in Matthew for the last four years as a church. And we encourage you guys to habitually read them and study them on your own as an act of rejecting the rebellion of Genesis 3 of determining you know, right and wrong, good and evil based on your preferences or current mood. As the story tonight indicates, and as history teaches us, we humans do not do well in this role as ultimate judge. We don't do well for ourselves, we don't do well for each other or the planet. We come to the scriptures to sit at the feet of our king and judge, Jesus, and learn the way to live and think and relate to one another. We sit, learn, and then live it out, empowered by the Spirit to live out the life of Jesus through our lives. Jesus, may we sit at your feet, laying down our illegitimate claims of authority over our own lives and surrendering ourselves to you, your goodness, and authority. Amen. Let's pray together. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.